Thanks for joining us for the Minor Tweak Major Impact Podcast. We're excited to have Luke Schwertfeger as the guest for today's episode. Luke Schwertfeger graduated from Colorado State University with a bachelor's degree in biological sciences prior to joining the same university's PhD program in the Department of Biomedical Sciences. Luke's doctoral work, for which he's advised by Dr. Stuart Tobit, focuses on understanding the nervous system of the mammalian intestine and how it functions in response to pathogen invasion. Luke, I would like to welcome you to the Minor Tweak Major Impact podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me. Luke, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're currently working on? I'm a second year PhD student here at Colorado State University. Technically in the Department of Biomedical Sciences, our, we don't really have a strict program for what I do, which is gut physiology, but I, I pretty much work on how the intestine signals when pathogens get inside. So everything from neurons, neural signaling to immune signaling to all of those together when a pathogen invades the intestine. You had a story where a minor tweak in a method kind of messed up your whole experiment. Can you tell us a little bit about how a minor tweak had a major impact on your research? Yeah, so it's about seven or eight months ago now, we, uh, we'd been using this protocol that my advisor originally developed in the 80s for brains, and I translated to intestines. Um, where we, we keep a piece of intestine alive in a dish. And, and when I say piece, I mean an entire cross-section of the, of the mouse or in some cases human intestine. And we could keep it alive for about a week at a time, which is substantially longer than just about anybody else. And one day I checked on my cultures at 24 hours and they were all extremely dead, like totally dissociated, looked like mush in, in the dish. And I was obviously a bit distraught by that. So I went to my advisor and, and I said, hey, what do you think's going on here? He goes, oh, it's probably just a fluke with an infection or something. Try it again. And so I tried it again and it didn't work. And then I tried it again and it didn't work. And that repeated itself for about a uh, month and a half or two months doing the experiment every week. I started tweaking just about everything I could think of uh, as far as sterile technique. I, I completely took apart my laminar flow hood. I took apart my fume hoods and cleaned the ever-living heck out of them, um, did everything I could think of, and, and yet the culture still died. And so about two months in, we heard from an old friend of my advisors down the way at our university that they use the same media we do, but for brain slice cultures, and their, their cultures were dying as well. And so we, uh, we said, well, what have you done to fix it? And he said, well, my tech is making our media from scratch instead of buying it, and it seems to have fixed it. And so we said, okay, so you think it's the media? And he goes, yeah. And so we went and use some of their homemade media and sure enough our cultures survive just fine and so it turned out to be uh, we use neurobasal media which is the gold standard for neuron cultures in the in the world it's kind of a bit of a golden goose egg because it it can culture multiple different organ systems ex vivo without having to change base media um, we've done it for pituitary ovaries intestines um, brains developing brains just about anything you can think of and it works great but it just stopped working. Um, so we ended up switching the media and it works fine now. Oh, wow. That's quite an interesting story. And so was there ever a point when you thought of just giving up and just were you going to throw everything away and say, oh, this doesn't work anymore. I'm done. <laughs> God, yes. So it was actually a bit fortunate because my advisor had been invited to write a, uh, a review right about the one month 
in where my protocol wasn't working. And so he said, well, you should be first author on this and focus on this and troubleshoot as a secondary. And I said, okay. And so that was a really good, good way to occupy my mind from doing the same experiment week after week after week and having it fail. Um, eventually, I got to a point about three months in where even when we had the new media, it still wasn't working quite right. It ended up being a, a whole different thing. So we ended up buying a new produced media. But at that point, I was pretty close to giving up and was pretty close to just saying, ah, forget it. We'll just do cell cultures. <laughs> you said you you did a lot of different tweaks and stuff to, to try to figure out what's wrong. Did you also look back at other different methods to figure out what maybe could be broken or any other things you did? The cultures that we do are a bit a bit unique. Most people in the world who study gut physiology either do cell cell cultures with just monolayers of cells, or they do things called organoids, which are essentially like little mini guts, or they do cells on a chip. And all three of those are pretty drastically different from what we do, mainly because they only have to worry about a, a certain finite amount of cells. So, so for instance, in organoids, there's like six types of epithelial cells. Um, ours have over 20 different cell types because we have muscles and neurons and glia and all these are the things that aren't in these normal cells. So there's only only one or two other teams that actually do similar um, slices in the gut as we do. Uh, one of them out of the Netherlands, uh, Henny Gruthius's lab, she actually pioneered these things called precision cut intestinal slices. And so I went back to their papers and I looked through and was trying to see any hints in their media composition that could be killing it or did they use a different oxygen in their incubator or... Um, different antibiotic cocktails, things like that. And while the, it was helpful in guiding the troubleshooting, there was no fix there. So what happened really was that the media composition really just changed from like one batch to the other, right? Yeah. So did the vendor tell you about this or just you just didn't even know that there was a change? So we narrowed it down to the first experiment started going bad when we got a new lot of the media. Um, and so we emailed and then called the vendor and they said, oh, that's awful. Let us send you a new lot for free. And we're like, sweet, thanks. And they said, tell us what you find. And so I, I emailed them back about a month later and said, both lots are bad. And they said, okay try a third one. I said, okay. And so they sent me another lot and I tried it and it was still bad. So that was when I was like, okay, we need to pursue other things. Um, and the vendor had stopped responding to my emails because I was telling them their media didn't work. And so that, that was a bit of a frustration for us. But yeah, the vendor was not too helpful. After you figured out that the media was the issue, do you know if anybody knew this before? Like after you figured out, was there anybody around you that said, oh, I knew this? So nobody knew what was causing the problem, but it was, it was kind of funny. We have a, a department happy hour here and we were, I was sitting at happy hour and one of the professors comes in who uses the same media as we do for brain cultures. And he says, he says, Luke, I just read your and Stu's review. I mean, you guys are switching out a neurobasal. And I said, kind of, it's not working well for us. And he goes, huh. And he slaps his postdoc on the shoulder and says, maybe that's why our cultures are dying. And it turned out that five labs on our campus now uh, use use the same media that are all having problems with it. And so we've all switched away from classical neurobasal media because it was killing our culture. So everybody knew it, but we just didn't know what was causing it. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> How long do you think your whole the whole process would have taken if you knew this detail, if you didn't have to try all the tweaks? Like how much time did you spend on just tweaking? I probably, if, if I would have known it was the neurobasal media, it probably would have saved me six months of my life. Okay, wow. <laughs> That's a long time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so, 
as we just heard from you, some method development discoveries are really obviously a, a matter of luck. But do you have any suggestion how to maximize this luck? The thing that really helped me was through my advisor, um, going to him and, and him using his connections in the, in the field to say, who else is having problems with this? And once we found that we weren't the only people having problems with it, it helped spur the drive to find that it was the media, um, mainly thanks to a professor down the way, Jim Bamberg, who knew who, who's the one who was making his own media. So I suppose, you know, using your network was, would be the most helpful for me. Did you have any other instances ever when you were working on a protocol and a tiny detail was missing and it required a lot of troubleshooting and optimizing for it? It's funny, actually, where we collaborate with, I personally collaborate with an engineer and we're trying to build this really fancy microfluidic device for similar cultures to what I do now. Um, and we finally got it working about a month ago. And we were very excited because we, we thought, well, it's finally working. We can start generating data. And then I came in at the 24-hour mark on the culture and the syringes were bright yellow and infected with yeast. And so they're yellow because of a pH indicator, but that's a bad, bad thing when it's yellow. <laughs> and it means that essentially you're just pumping bacteria and yeast into your cultures that aren't supposed to be there. And so I was like, well, that's weird. And so I pretty much did what I had done with the previous problem with slight, with our slices. And I cleaned the ever-living heck out of the incubator. I sterilized everything I could think of. Um, I made sure we had a brand new bottle of media open for the next experiment. And then it still got infected. And it's these small little things where you don't realize that my collaborator, who's an engineer, he doesn't think the same way as I do as a biologist. And so I didn't realize that he had been reusing uh, components that connect to our media containers um, from experiment to experiment and hadn't been washing them. And so that, you know, it's something if you work with bacteria, that's so simple. It's like, well, duh, there's where the bacteria is coming from. But to an engineer who doesn't ever work in a hood, that's an entirely novel idea that you have to clean those things. And so as of this morning, we uh, just got the data back that our new strategy for cleaning all of the components prevented the infection. So something as simple as washing stuff fixed a three-week problem. Wow, that's crazy. You said that a good thing is to just talk to your advisor if you're stuck with something. Do you have any other tips or suggestions for other scientists who are experiencing the lack of detailed method descriptions or if they're just trying to figure out any issues? Um, I've actually I've actually had good luck uh, recently using essentially the internet and modern social networking for help. For instance, uh, ResearchGate is very nice for asking questions. I go on there and I see people asking questions all the time that it's like, oh yeah, I wish I would have known that three years ago. And then actually, I recently uploaded our Slice protocol to protocols.io and it's it's been really nice to peruse other people's protocols and in real time see their fixes. So essentially using modern social networking and research networking tools to ask questions and get answers in a real time, if say your advisor or your, or if you are a PI, <laughs> if the, the answers aren't readily out there in the literature. I have one last question for you. And that is, do you have any favorite lab tool? And if you do, why is that your favorite lab tool? I spend a large portion of my day staring at a dissecting scope. So I'd probably have to say my dissecting scope is my favorite tool just because it, it's really fun to be able to see stuff in extremely tiny things in good detail. Luke, thank you so much for being with us today and sharing your stories on the Minor Tweak Major Impact podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This is your host Anita and we look forward to being with you for our next episode.